I'm glad we sang these songs that have delighted in the worthiness of Jesus as our Savior. Because really the bulk of my message today is to try and convince us from God's Word that there is absolutely no other way that we can be saved. And so I want you to strap yourselves in and prepare yourselves for a rather brutal experience of being faced with what God has to say about us as human beings. We love to think well of ourselves. We're very good at putting a positive spin. One of the glories of of being a man is you can look in the mirror and you can think, pretty good. That's all about delusion, men, isn't it? It's all about delusion. And we love to kind of look at ourselves and go, hey, yeah, sure, there's a few faults, regrets, I've had a few, but not bad. But God has to wake us up and show us as we truly are. It's scary to look in the mirror and honestly look. Are you willing to do that? Let's pray that God would help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word. And so we want to humble ourselves to hear it. And we want to ask you to open our eyes to see that it is true. Lord, would you bring us all to that point where we will have no confidence in ourselves and see that the only one that we can have confidence in is your Son, our Savior and King. Lord, we ask that you'd so work in all of our hearts that we would go out of our gathering today just knowing that there's only one who's worthy of our praise, the Lamb who was slain. The Lord Jesus Christ, risen and exalted. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, I think it's great. We should be praying for our uh, MSPs, whether Conservative, Labour, SMP, Lib Dem, Greens, or whatever. We should be praying for them all. Uh, I think it's a very tough time uh, as a nation. How do, you, how do you achieve consensus to lead a nation that's increasingly getting more diverse in different worldviews and philosophical out, outlooks, and, and, a, and a society which is getting increasingly more polarized. Certainly the referendums have seemed to polarize us, haven't they? The referendum on Scottish independence and then the referendum on whether we should leave the European on, uh, Union or not. These, these have made us feel quite separated and people are getting quite angry. So let's pray for them to have wisdom How do you create a cohesive country with all of this going on? The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to Christians in Rome in AD 57, and he wanted to strengthen them. Uh, It appears that there were tensions amongst the Christians there in Rome, tensions between the Jewish believers in Jesus and the non-Jewish believers, the Gentile believers. And he says, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you, to strengthen you. Because he knows that only a deeper grasp of God's gospel about his son will enable genuine, loving community 
amongst this diverse ethnic mix of people in Rome. Only the understanding of what the gospel has to say will, will break down old divisions, will bring unity and harmony. And only, the, only, the, only a real grasp of the gospel of God's grace will, will bring about a passion to keep spreading the gospel in a time of hostility. And we've been working through the letter of Romans, and uh, we've got to chapter 3. And I want you just to look at uh, verse 9, really, to, as a pivot point this morning. 3 verse 9, page 1130. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? What shall we conclude? This is uh, him concluding the first part of his argument. He's shown basically how we are all in the same terrible predicament as human beings. God is very angry against sinful humanity. Uh, Look back at chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, what's this truth that we suppress? Well, it is this. There is a creator God. It's quite evident as we look at the order, the beauty, the majesty of his, of his created universe, that there's a creator God behind it who designed it all. And we basically take that knowledge that there is a creator God and we suppress it. We sit on it. We know that there's a creator God who deserves our, uh, our worship, our thanksgiving, our service, but instead we choose to, to be godless, to live as if God was not there, to pretend that he's not there. We've turned our back against God. We take all the goodies, and yet we fail to thank the giver. Worse than that, even, we worship and serve the created things. We live for the stuff, for for the things of this world, rather than the creator who is worthy of all our worship and praise. And so God is right in his anger at sinful humanity. We are without excuse, he's made the point. And his anger is clearly evidence in the world today. We've turned our back on God, and so God has turned his back on us. Several times you saw in chapter 1 this language, God gave us over to our sinful desires. This is how we see God's anger in our society. He he lets us go after our sinful desires. He lets us experience the, the full consequences of our sinful desires. All the moral chaos, all the brokenness that we see in the world is, in fact, a wake-up to us that God is very angry. He's giving us what we want, and what we want is harming us and hurting us. As we all pursue our own godless desires, as we pursue wickedness and evil. And he's looked at three kind of groups. He's looked at rebellious pagans. Uh, in chapter 1. And then he's looked at respectable moralists in chapter 2. 
And of course, at the end of the day, they're, they're both in exactly the same boat. The rebellious pagans have rejected the evidence of, of God in his creation, but the respectable moralists show by their moral judgment that they have a conscience, they know what is right and wrong, and yet when, when the moralist denounces and decries other people's wrong activities, but then ends up doing essentially the same things themselves, then they show too that they've rejected God. That they are also sinfully rebelling against God. Uh, that um, they end up in exactly the same place. And then we saw last week, he looked at this third category, the outwardly religious. And the Apostle Paul speaks of his own Jewish people. Proud of having God's revealed word, the Mosaic law, and the thing that marked them out as God's special people, the sign of male circumcision. And so 3 verse 9, he asks that question, do we, we Jewish people, have any advantage? Well, in one way, yes. That's what the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1 says. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, so he's going to give us a list. He actually only ends up giving us the first point on his list. Uh, you're going to have to get to chapter 9 before he finishes off the list. You'll see many more plus points given in chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. But he starts with the major thing. What's, what's the major thing? Well, the advantage of a privileged knowledge of God, of his plans and his purposes. He says, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What an extraordinary thing to be entrusted with the very words of God. You know, this is what every journalist wants, isn't it? The on-the-record quote of the politician or the cabinet minister or the prime minister even. They want to know what's going on behind closed doors. What are they planning to do? What is it that motivates them what is it that drives them? They need the revelation of what's happening behind closed doors. And here's the extraordinary thing. Israel had been given the inside scoop. They'd been entrusted with the very words of God. God's special revelation given to them. He'd revealed himself, his character, his nature, that he's holy, righteous, and good. He'd revealed his purposes and his plans, revealing his standards and his ethics. And, and they had received the very words of God from the Creator God. They, the descendants of Abraham, had received the Mosaic law, his laws and his promises. And this had brought them into a special covenant relationship. That's what the male circumcision was all about a sign that they were the marked out special people of God. As God declared, I will be your God and you will be my people. Out of all the nations, I have known you, loved you. Very great privileges. But here's the challenge. Their own history and their own scriptures demonstrate this. Although that they had been entrusted with the very words of God, they'd not kept trust with God. They'd been unfaithful to God. 
They had been unrighteous. They knew exactly in black and white what was right and wrong, and yet they had flagrantly done those very things. They heard God's law, but they had not obeyed it as we looked and saw back in chapter 2. And so God was completely right and faithful in being very angry at their sin. They had the huge privilege, but that only increased their responsibility. In chapter 3, verse 4, we actually have a quote from uh, Psalm 51. It's part of King David's prayer of confession. Great King David. All the kings... First job that they had to do was to write out the law for themselves in their own hands so they could read it every day. He knew the very words of God. He'd been entrusted with it. He was the king of Israel. And yet, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged the convenient death of her husband. And after being convicted of his sin and adultery, he writes this in in Psalm 51 verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned, he says to God, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge There King David admits God is absolutely right to be furious with him because of his sin. So yes, in in one sense, God was right. Uh, uh, There was a a real privilege and advantage. But in the most fundamental way, no advantage whatsoever. 3 verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? 3 verse 9, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Whether you're rebellious pagans, whether you're respectable moralists, whether you're the religious privileged, all are in the same terrible predicament. We've, we're all under the power of sin. This expression, under sin, is a telling one. It's not just that we sin occasionally, that we occasionally do wrong things. But it speaks of us being enslaved to sin. Sin is like a cruel master uh, who lords it over us. He reigns over us and in us. Sin is a cruel tyrant that holds the whole human race imprisoned and under God's judgment. We're all under sin. Jew, Gentile, everyone. And it's not that sin makes us or coerces us to do what we don't want to do. Sin makes us want to do what we ought not to do. And so we are rightly facing God's condemnation for our sin. Well, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? You know, cheer up, Paul. Is he a bit of a depressive, a bit of a pessimist? Where does he get this from? 
well, you get this incredible string of Old Testament quotations. He wants to back this up from God's word, from Ecclesiastes, from the Psalms, from Isaiah. What do we learn from these quotations as we look at them together? What do we learn about the state of being under sin? Well, look at this list in verses 10 to 18. Notice with me that it begins with this first thing. It's ruined our relationship with God. Look at how the list begins and ends. Uh, look at verse 10 again. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everything in between has to do with how sin spoils our human relationships. But that is a consequence of being uh, under sin. It, it, it is this primary problem that we've broken our relationship with God. There's no fear of God. We don't understand him. We don't seek him. Sin is primarily a condition of rebellion against God. God is the most important person in the universe. But our fundamental problem is this. We don't care about God's glory. We don't live for him. We don't live for his praise. We don't love God with our whole hearts. We don't love his son Jesus. What sin is, is the revolt of the self against God. It's the dethroning of God and putting ourself on the throne of the universe. We attempt to do that. Although, of course, we cannot do that. Under sin means we've got a ruined relationship with God. And consequently, we have a ruined relationship with people. Look at the way it describes the, the way that sin ruins our words. Uh, it talks about our throats and our tongues, and our lips, and, their, and our mouths. They're all organs of speech, aren't they? And what's coming out are words that harm. Verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now, thankfully, that's not all of our words, is it? People do speak nice and kind words to each other. But as we look at ourselves on, on the full picture, is this not true? Have we not at times chosen to use words that were aimed to hurt, that, aim, that were aimed to be poisonous to others, that meant to harm them? People have pointed out that um, people say absolutely awful things on social media. Uh, and yet when, when they meet the very same people in person, they, they're very apologetic. What's that dynamic? 
Well, I think social media allows us to say what we really want to say. Unencumbered by the reality of facing a human being, which moderates it because we're worried about consequences. But deep down, as we look at the awful things that are said to our politicians and to public leaders, there are most horrific and awful things that are said on social media. Words that are violent and defiled and foul and debased and depraved in every way as people threaten rape and threaten harm and death and wish the worst of people. This is us. Unencumbered. This is the vitriol that can come out of us. And being under sin not only ruins our speech, but our actions. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I was very shocked this week to see pictures of these, uh, this lesbian couple who were beaten up on a bus by four men. How horrific to beat up women as you make cruel jokes about them and to see them covered in blood. Well, thankfully, because of God's common grace, we don't behave like this all the time. We fear consequences. Um, people still can be truthful and people can be lawful. But should God remove the restraint, the Bible tells us what will happen. It will be a descent into anarchy. And if you think, oh no, this is too much, preacher boy, just remember every key in your pocket is a reminder that you don't really trust people in your street. Every one of those terrible passwords. How many passwords do we have to remember these days for internet accounts? It reminds us that you cannot trust people. There's a reason we have governments. And we should pray for them that they keep peace and law and order. I'm very thankful to live in a more peaceful society compared to many. There's a reason that we have police and law courts and, and armies. Because we're capable of terrible violence, of bloodshed. We're under sin. We've turned our back away from God. We've turned away from God. And so we have hateful speech, speech, speech that hates the truth. And, and, and lives that are quick to cause strife. That's what it's like to be under sin. And so, verses 19 and 20, we have um, a little summary statement that whether we're judged by God's normal standards, moral standards according to our consciences, or whether God's moral standards according to God's moral law made explicit in his revealed word, the Bible, we have nothing we can say in our defense. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight 
by the works of the law or any of our moral works. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Here's the point. We're all in moral debt. And if you need righteousness, if you need credit, you can't borrow off somebody in debt. And there is no one who is righteous. So here's this conclusion. We're all under sin. We're under God's wrath. God is angry. He's right to be angry. And nothing I can do can stop God being angry. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now, do we feel the weight of that? Because only when we feel the weight of that will the gospel of Jesus Christ be the most glorious good news we will ever hear. We're only one verse away from it. Come back next week and you'll hear it. No, I can't let that go because you might not make it next week. So let me just read these verses to you. Because I don't want you to hear that this is the good news. This is why we're so joyful and, and we sang all those wonderful songs about how worthy Jesus is. 3 verse 21. But now, uh, apart from the law, which is just as well because we just can't keep it adequately. But now, apart from law, the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you turn from your sin, if we turn from all forms of self-saving ourselves, self-salvation, God's righteousness can be ours completely as a gift. We're going to examine this in more detail next week, but because Christ offered himself freely and willingly as a sacrifice upon the cross, he, the righteous one, standing in the place of unrighteous people so that we could be redeemed we could be rescued and pulled out under the the power of sin because he will deal with the penalty of our sin by taking God's wrath in our place and this is ours if we receive this gift of righteousness with the empty hands of faith there's nothing we can do it has to be a gift of God's grace that we receive by faith. It's brilliant. It's amazing. This alone is the basis of, of genuine community because it breaks down all the divisions, all the forms of self-pride we might have in different cultural identities or different backgrounds or whatever fine moral achievements we think to the, we bring to the table, the Bible says, no, we are all under sin. We're all under his wrath. The gospel is the great equalizer. 
And we all fully benefit simply through this one amazing Savior, through faith in him. And this is, this is a gospel that humbles us. And this is a gospel that enables us to become dependent on God's grace. And of course, this is why we engage in mission. This is why the good news has got to go out. I'm so glad, as, as, as we've prayed earlier, that we have politicians. But you know what uh, they'll tell you is that they can't fix the deepest problems that are out there. We need them, but they can't fix the real heart problems. We've turned our back against God. We need salvation. We need brand new hearts. We need forgiveness. We need to be right with God. Only through Christ can we receive this righteousness. Only through Christ will his wrath be removed. Only with Christ will we have peace with God. Have you come to him and sought his grace? This is why we're so excited about the gospel. This is why we sing about it. This is why we kind of give our money, isn't it? Because we want to see gospel ministry go on. This is why we send people out with the gospel. We've got a world that desperately needs the gospel. All are under sin. And we have the message that will save. Look to Christ. Christ.